0: Dose of Leadership podcast, episode 82.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard
0: Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This show is brought to you by my sponsor, Audible.com. If you're like me, you like to read, but you're having trouble finding the time to squeeze in all those great books, well, Audible.com is a perfect solution. Audiobooks are great. I never thought I would like them, but I love them now. It's a great way to get caught up. I listen to and get caught up on the book as I'm driving to work. If I'm exercising, any free time working out in the yard, I can get caught up on all my reading. You can go to uh, my website, doseofleadership.com slash audible. And you can uh, download a free audiobook. Any audiobook they have, over 100,000 titles to choose from, you can download it for free, listen to it. You can sign up for 30 days with no obligation. If you don't like it after 30 days, you can cancel your subscription. But again, it's no risk to you. Go check out slash audible to make your smartphone smarter. I'm so happy to have back on my show my good friend, Paul Callan. He's been on the show twice. You may have heard his episodes where I talked to him back in February. Then about a month ago, we decided to do a themed podcast, and he came on and did heroic leadership and brought him back. And so he's the author of The Callan Course. He's an expert in leadership. He's a former Marine officer like myself. And, Paul, welcome back to the show.
2: Rich, great to be back with you, and I look forward to delving into another uh, exciting and compelling topic on leadership.
0: yeah, well, you know, in the first part, you know we talked about heroic leadership and you explained to me why heroic leadership still matters in the modern world, and um, you know you've targeted much of your teaching towards Guiding the ascent of the millennial generation leaders. And uh, I know you and I have talked about it. We're passionate about it. We believe that the future is the millennial leaders. So, you know, we thought we'd continue our discussion on heroic leadership, but let's focus on the millennials today, you know, who they are, how we should lead them. And uh, I guess my main question is will they aspire to heroic leadership and why it matters? So, I don't know, Paul, let's start off. It seems to me that the first place to start this discussion is with, you know, who are the millennials? Can you explain some of the facts and the figures about this millennial generation?
2: Yeah, sure, Rich. It's a great place to start. uh, It'll help uh, the audience uh, refer to and baseline uh, the generation of which we're talking. So let's just do the facts, both generally and then maybe some workplace facts. Uh, Millennials are also known as uh, Generation Y. Uh, basically, people born between 1980 and 2000, in other words, those that are walking amongst us that are the ages of 13 to 33. It's probably the easiest way to think of it. They're approximately 80 million strong in terms of uh, U.S. generation group, which is also, interestingly, the, the largest generation group in U.S. history. They're 7% larger than the baby boomers, mm-hmm. and they currently comprise about 27% of the U.S. population. Uh, also, an interesting note about them as a group is they're mo- the most uh, racially diverse group in our history. Shifting to the workplace, uh, they currently account for about 25% of our workforce. By 2020, which isn't really that far away, they'll be 40% of our workforce, mm. and by 2030, 50%. So, as we said, they're ascendant and soon to be dominant in terms of our workforce. Um, in terms of context, because I think this will help um, also our audience place them in context is um, they are wedged, if you will, between at the top end baby boomers, those that are born between, say, 1945 and 64, that's generally where we place the boomers, Generation X, which is 65 to 1980, and then behind them is, I guess, what we're calling Generation Z or the Generation Next, and those are folks born after 2000.
0: Mm. Well, you know, you and I have talked about this offline and clearly, and I've seen this in uh, my work experience, and I know you've talked about it too, they're clearly, and I'm impressed with a lot of them, that the, they're emerging as as the future leaders of the organizations. They have a, a different leadership style from what I've seen. What do you see as some of their strengths and their weaknesses and maybe some of their advantages and disadvantages, if you will?
2: Yeah, sure, and I think what we have to start, uh, is what you might call the common narrative about the millennials, right? The thing that you might pick up on, um, you know, the media and uh, other forms of just what you might call, you know, broad expression of of who this group is, and like all emerging generations throughout our history is uh, the new generation, the Millennials in this case, is always tagged, it seems, from my research, with less than flattering descriptions when we look at it from afar, right? Right. And it kind of goes like this, the basic storyline or that narrative is, you know, the the Millennials are fame-obsessed, they're self-involved, they're overconfident, they're less civically engaged, they're entitled, and they're narcissistic, right? That's the perception. That's what you might call the urban myth of the Millennial generation. The problem, I believe, though, is that it's wrong to to really broad-brush any generational group, and the same would be true of the Millennials, as if they were a single homogenous entity. It's really faulty thinking. But for the purposes of our discussion here, uh, and kind of trying to myself move away from um, that urban mythology, here's what I think the millennials' advantages and disadvantages are, but the way I'm going to frame it is in terms of either things that they've inherited, right, from us, from those that are older than them, some of them are structural, like, for example, the economy, and some are potentially of their making. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I'll just kind of frame it up, and this is Paul Callan's view. Their advantages, and I'm not saying this is all-inclusive, but I've just picked a couple, uh, are these. One is they're, I think, highly inventive and innovative. Right. And they show that, right, through their entrepreneurial spirit. Number two is I find them to be very accepting. And you see this played out broadly in the way they engage amongst themselves and with others in terms of, say, race, gender, and religion, right? right. Um, number three is they embrace change. I think of them, and I kind of call them the constant data generation. They seem to be in constant data change, and they're comfortable with it. They actually embrace it, Right. They obviously are very comfortable with and embrace technology. Where You and I might have grown up somewhat fearful of technology. It was different to us. We didn't really uh, grow up with it. They obviously did and are very comfortable with it. And number uh, number five is I find them to be very pragmatic, maybe more pragmatic than my generation. Mm-hmm. Their disadvantages, conversely, um, and again, a lot of these were given to them or they they're conditioned by their circumstances okay and i i've got four things that i think fall into the disadvantage category number one is they've been conditioned to expect instant gratification they they i think believe that they can get anything now number two is and i and i hope to talk a little bit more about this later they're the most peer-dominated generational group in our history And I'll I'll, I'll discuss that in more detail, I think, as we get in later into our discussion. Number three is they lack what I would call edifying principles in a living mythology, in other words, because that's been stripped from our society for the most part. And then number four is they're mostly dealing with each other in a tech-based form of interaction. right? So these factors, those ones I just listed, these are the things that our companies and our group should be focusing on in terms of how we engage, not the perceptions of the urban myths that I mentioned earlier.
0: Well, you know, I, I'm sitting here and listening to that, and I'm thinking, well, okay, you, you got two Generation X guys sitting there talking, um, and it's kind of hitting me now that I'm I'm officially a part of the older generation, you know, and isn't there That's some, isn't there some concern now? Um, You know, one that too long ago, when I heard people talking about me and the Gen X generation. But uh, isn't there some concern that we could be viewed and we're just the funny guys? You know, looking at this newer generation, we don't get it. We seem to always think of our past as the the good old good old days, and somehow. Um, today it's worse. I mean, I, I guess I'm really not hearing that from you, but I guess I'm kind of, as I was listening to your answer there, I was thinking that maybe there, that perception can come across that we're looking at them as uh, we're better and they're worse. You know, historically how have we viewed uh, the new upcoming generation? Are, are they really any different than the, in past generations?
2: No, and and that's a great point is, because here's what we know is a fact, and I'm, I'm going to prove this uh, just by some of the some of the information that I've extracted, but the older generation has essentially always said this about the younger generation: they're adrift, they're lazy, they're selfish, they're shallow, and they're narcissistic. <laughs> right. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna read two or three quotes, and I'll then as the audience listens to this, you know, ask yourself as you're hearing these quotes, you know, at what time, when, of these things probably being said. Okay, here's the first one: it's quote, the rock upon which which most marriages go to pieces, is this current-day cult of individualism, the worship of the self. Okay, when you hear that, more than likely your mind's going to say, oh, they're talking about today. They're talking about the youth of today. That quote, interestingly, is from 1907.
0: Oh, really? I was thinking yeah. Like maybe, the, yeah, the, the 80s or the 90s, but yeah, wow, that, that long right. ago, huh? Yeah. 1907.
2: Okay, here's another one. Okay, Here quote. The youth were too busy napping and playing to care about politics. The now generation has become the me generation. Again, when you hear that quote, you in the audience, you're probably thinking, oh, yeah, they're talking about the millennials they're talking about today. Guess what? That quote comes from 1976. Yeah. Right? So anyway, there's two. There's others. So to your question, are the millennials really any different? No. Now, here's my theory on why I think we keep falling into this trap, though, of thinking the youth is somehow different, that they're somehow uh, more misfit than we were, right, when we were young, is that we've always made this mistake: it was we think again that a generational group can be reduced to a single definition that right. depicts them throughout their entire develop- developmental arc across a 20 to 25 years. Right. The problem is, is that. When we ask these questions, when we're trying to assess up what you might call how each group uh, values um, certain qualities, we often ask the questions, like here's an example, do you respect authority, right? Mm -hmm. We ask it and pose it to each group, right? at their current developmental point. In other words, we would ask that to, say, me, I'm a boomer, right? So you ask me that question, do I respect authority? Ask you, you're a Generation X, right, the same question. And then you ask a millennial, right? And that's generally the way we do it, and that's the way you see this information depicted in the media. the millennials, of course, are going to ask, answer that different because they're at the beginning of their growth arc yeah, as a group, right? Yep. Generation X is at the midpoint, so they're going to answer it different, and then boomers are going to answer it even differently, because they're advanced in their developmental arc. Right. So that's the problem. A better model, in other words, if we really wanted to understand how people perceive their world and what they value, would be to ask each group the same questions at the same time in their developmental arc. In other words, ask the Boomers, Gen X, and Millennials the same question when they were each 20, when they were each turned 30, and then when they each again turned 50, right? Mm -hmm. And what my belief is that you would then see that the differences are really very small. Yeah. Very, very small. Okay. But here's the key point. Here's what I do think is unique between each generation, because essentially what I'm saying is that we're all the same. We all start out young, uh, exuberant, and somewhat adrift, and we, and we gradually mature. But there is a difference, I believe, um, that comes into play. Okay, two things. One is it's the conditions into which that generation is born, right? Economy, technology, the pendulum swing of social mores. And number two is their means of expression. Those two things are unique and can can cause differences. So now viewed from that filter, right, the conditions and the means of expression, there are three ways I think the millennials are different, say, than I was as a boomer. Okay, Number one is, again, and I mentioned this before, they're the most heavily peer-dominated group in their history, and that can pose problems. Number two is the conditions, the economy, may keep the millennials in a more prolonged state of adolescence, for yeah. example, living with their parents longer, because they have to. And number three is the technology focus that they have may ensnare them somewhat unwittingly into a more present tense or episodic form of living and experiencing life. Those are the three things that I think are uniquely um, tagged to the millennials.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, and, and you know, looking at it, I, I would agree with everything you are saying there. Let's shift gears a little bit. I, I've had some unique experiences in leading uh, millennials. So let's talk about how we, as the Boomers and the Gen Xers, if and if there is any listeners out there in that same age group, how do you engage with them? You know, what do they aspire to? I mean, and what do they desire in the workplace today?
2: Okay, great. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good segue, because based on if you stay with that theory, my theory, if you will, that all generations essentially follow the same maturation arc, I think we have to answer that three ways. Okay, First, the millennials in every generation that will ever come want the same basic things we have always wanted. It's what I call peak experiences, meaning, purpose, challenge, value, group achievement. That's a core common desire. Like I said earlier in the uh, second podcast, it's almost at a DNA level. Second, I think we have to keep in mind some of those core advantages of the millennials that I mentioned earlier. Mil- <clears throat> excuse me, millennials want that peak experience within the workforce, and they want to have a workforce that embraces and rewards invention, innovation, yeah. you know, radical self leadership, and technology. And then third. And though they may not mention this or even yet be conscious of this, I believe they want to be led well and they want to look up to heroic examples. They want that wise elder that we mentioned previously, someone who has walked the path before them to help mentor, guide, and advise them. I think they yearn for that heroic leadership model and those edifying principles. So as leaders... We need to provide these three qualities in our groups, in our workplaces. Number one, peak experiences. Two, an innovative culture. And three, heroic leadership and edifying principles.
0: You know, you and I kind of stumbled upon this when we first met last year. We talked about this idea of heroic leadership. You and I both had the similar experiences where we were talking to this generation, and we were somewhat taken aback by – This kind of, um, how do we put it, this hunger or this thirst for heroic leadership. I've seen it in my presentations, and it kind of took me off guard. And I think you said the same thing early on in your kind of presentation piece a year or so ago. But it seems to be that there's so much, um, you know, future leadership is going to be dominated by, you know, technology. And again, it's so second nature to all of them. I mean, I guess I'm going to play devil's advocate. I mean, some would, I guess, would question whether a classic concept of heroic leadership still matters in a tech-centered world. Do you believe that?
2: No, I actually reject the idea completely. But to answer this correctly, I think we need to be very careful in distinguish between leadership and management. Yeah. And right. I like to keep that very simple because I I think that there is a clear distinction. But the easiest way to frame those. Those two uh, concepts up and distinguish them as this is we lead people and we manage things. So, accepting that distinction between leading and managing, here's my belief. Here's my answer to that question leadership can't ever be replaced by technology. Right. Leadership, which is truly an art, right? It's a master craft, will always be a deeply human interaction, achieved best in a personal, physical, and communal setting. Leadership at its most fundamental level, I believe, Rich, is influence. It's human influence. Right. Leadership requires judgment. It requires discernment, empathy, emotional intelligence, wisdom, right? So leadership deals with affect, right? It results in human effectiveness. Management, now that's a different story. Here's where technology does come in. Yeah. How well we manage processes, procedures, equipment, Metrics and measures, those types of things. Yes, those things can be, uh, and to a greater degree, replaced by technology. If management at its core is about increasing productivity and efficiency, then yes, technology has a vital role and an expanding role in management because management deals with efficiency. But we always need to remember this, and this is something I always stomp my foot on when I'm, when I'm speaking to my students, is no matter how greatly technology enhances management, at some point, we will have to engage personally. Somewhere in that value stream or that engagement stream, two humans are going to interact. Right. That personal interaction, right, that influence and that affect is leadership. And that will never be replaced
0: by technology. Yeah, beautiful. I love that answer, and, and you're exactly right. That, um, and I, and I think historically, whatever generation technology or not, I think that's where most people miss the boat. Is this intentional idea of leadership that it is influence and nothing else? And I think a lot of people don't even look at themselves as leaders until you pose to them, "Look, do you interact with another human being? Are you, you know, how do you act with your kids? Every interaction with another human being." Is is a negotiation of influence, and therefore, to, and yeah, and to influence leadership matters. And so, yeah, and I love that. I love that point. And it's easy to get wrapped up in this idea that technology will replace that somehow. But you're absolutely right that the human interaction is is always going to be there, regardless. I, I don't know. I see. I like that because I think some of the some of the millennials that are out there and they're great and they're, and they're knocking it out of the park with this. Um, the technology and understanding it, and in the, in, uh, the new kind of entrepreneurial wave that's coming from them—the um, ones that are really getting it—and they don't seem to be consciously even knowing it, but they're—they're they're the ones that understand leadership. But they don't even understand they're doing leadership. If that makes sense. But what they do understand is that it's all about purpose and interacting with another human being and using the technology as a tool. So, I love what you said about that in your answer. You know, in our last podcast, we. And just to refresh, if if the listeners haven't heard the one about heroic leadership, you defined heroic leadership really coming from four cornerstones. And I'm looking at my notes here. It says uh, it was one, a noble purpose, and tell me if I get these wrong, but uh, honorable aspiration, uh, right action, and a commitment to something larger than themselves. And uh, why do you think millennials would aspire to that particular vision of life and leadership?
2: Yeah, because, again, it gets back to that that point we discussed earlier was, you know, was it potentially antiquated as a, as a concept. Yeah. And um, and here's why I think that millennials will spark that particular uh, form and definition of what we call heroic leadership is because the millennial souls are called to meaning just like every generation before or after. I passionately believe at our deepest level, we all want to find our inner hero. We want to embrace a heroic life and we want to trust in you know, those higher edifying principles that speak to our best selves, to our highest selves. Whenever in our, if you look at our country, whenever we have moved away from this heroic calling, whether it was, for example, the excesses of the roaring 20s, uh, the cultural upheaval of the 60s and 70s, the kind of the wanton greed of the 80s and 90s, or the tech, techno-worship today, the illusion gradually does lose its hold, and we're left asking questions like this. Is that all there is? You know, why does this not satisfy me? Why don't I feel elevated? I believe the millennials know this intuitively. Yeah. So the, what you might call the dazzle of technology for them is ever-present, right? It surrounds them. I think they know technology itself as an end, is a very shallow purpose, and therefore they increasingly have a hunger for something more, what we would call heroic ambitions. I believe, conversely, that it's us, our society's greatest failing for the millennials to date, is that we are not modeling this heroic pattern very well. Right? We've created what you might call a disenchanted world. But I know this for sure. If we build it, if we build that enchanted world built on heroic aspiration, they will follow.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I, 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 guess I really agree with that. I mean, we're we're all hungry for. Uh, for me, it's just what's what's been eye opening for me is this commitment to something larger than myself. I mean, and if you asked, and again, maybe that comes. I think we talked about this before, but that comes from the experience with the Marine Corps. But even going back about why I even joined the Marine Corps. And even if you ask a young Marine today, even the millennial Marines, it seems like that seems to be the consistent answer. Would you agree with that? That I, I joined because I wanted to be some part of something big.
2: Yes, not only you know do I agree with it, but it it it, it further strengthens that that uh, the argument we're making where again, our minds, you know, are drawn to reason, but our souls are drawn to meaning. Yeah. And that's that's Again, plays that point out is that what calls forth our greatest self, what calls forth what you might call the natural release of, of passion, is meaning, is something that's beyond any kind of a material reward um, or any kind of a material objective. It's always that deeper meaning in that sense, again, of group accomplishment and, and group achievement. So we see that in any great organization. Um, that endures as a champion or or has sustained excellence, that that never comes again from what you might call structural or material advantages. It always comes from what you might call soul work, the cultivation of soul work. And uh, that will always be true.
0: So if you could give uh, millennial leaders, I don't know, some guidance to their growth and, and development, as a heroic leader, how would they? You know, where would they start? I mean, maybe they. Maybe this is wake. You know, woken some of them up and thinking. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I would love to be part of something bigger myself. How would you get them started in their development as a heroic leader?
2: Yeah, sure. And 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 often what I do in my teaching is I end with. This that exact kind of thought process, I usually try to give them three things, for example. And they're not specific things, they're, as we've talked about several times in our past podcasts, is they tend to deal with self-mastery and self-leadership, so um, keeping within the realm of three, because I think we all can remember three things, the things I, I would offer to millennial leaders um, in terms of how they would develop themselves into heroic leaders, right, would be these. Uh, Number one is that you have to have an inner life, right? True self-mastery, you have to possess that before you can exert any kind of real external influence. I often like to equate it to, um, I always love the quote from the Greek philosopher and mathematician, Archimedes you know, who who said, "Quote, give me a place to stand and a lever, and I'll move the world." You mm. know what a great metaphor for leadership, right? right? Yeah. We need to have that place to stand, which is self mastery, before we can influence others. In other words, before we can start uh, wielding that lever. So that would be the first thing: is develop true self mastery. Number two is reconnect with the larger patterns or the broader sphere of living and leading. In other words, trust the classic hero path that we've talked about before. Classic wisdom matters in our modern world. It matters more than ever. So to the millennials, I'd say, you know, again, trust that hero path, but be careful at the same time not to trivialize yourself to death with technology. In other words, beware the siren's call of constant distraction that's born by technology. Beware the obsession with the latest cyber phenomenon, right? Beware episodic living. Connect with those broader patterns. And number three is, and it's really a question that I would pose to the millennials as a group, it's the question that they have to answer as a group. It's this, it's what is your Zeitgeist, which is the German word, I believe, for what's the spirit of your generation, what's the spirit of your age? And I would say to them, remember this, History has no grandchildren. And what I mean by that is every generation has to rediscover truth for itself, right? The millennials have to do that as a group. They have to appropriate wisdom for themselves. They have to solve life's mysteries, the challenges for themselves, just like you and I did in our generation, right? Right. Millennials must come ultimately at the end, you know, to this defining decision. What is your ethos? What do you stand for? What will be your enduring influence, those footprints that you're going to leave in the sand, and are those footprints worthy of following? So those would be three broad things i throw out to millennial leaders to connect them with um, the soulful things that you and I have already talked about that will elevate them to a more heroic form and a more heroic example of leadership.
0: You know, I think um, that's good stuff. I mean, that makes my head hurt now after 30 minutes, but I love it. I love the idea of this, the heroic leader. You know, and I guess and sometimes I wonder if it's because I'm, you know, you come from, you know, maybe people get sick of me talking about the Marine Corps, but, um, you know, that's what kept you going, and that's what really helped you understand. And you think about when you first went into the Marine Corps and you didn't really – um, at least I did anyway. You thought you knew what leadership was and it took so long of almost marination, almost twenty years worth really till you really fully started understanding it. Would you agree with that? I mean, not that you weren't a leader in those twenty years, but when you look at it how you were at the basic school as it compared to when you were retired and even now, that introspective and I don't know if you could even define leadership when you were at the basic school correctly. Does that am I fair in that statement?
2: No, very fair, right. I think there's two points that uh, we have made before, I think, in our other podcasts, and then they're worth repeating, is number one is, is leadership, both individually and within an organization, starts with an expectation for leadership. In right. other words, it's the role of the organization and the senior leaders within the organization to create an expectation for leadership. That's first and foremost, and to define leadership correctly, right? What we've often talked about, that the heroic paradigm, um, you're always leading, you're always exerting, influencing. You can't treat leadership in a compartmentalized yeah. sense. The metaphor I always use about, like, as if it's a coat, right, that you take it on and you put it off and you take it on and put it off. It's always on. Right. You're always leading because it's a reflection of you, your character and your ethos and and all those things so that to me is the is, you know is the most important thing is is beginning with that expectation for leadership and then the second thing is and it's the reason why I often refer to leadership as a master craft and as leaders we're master craftsmen Is that you don't ever really achieve no. your ultimate destination right um, you're always honing your craft you're always studying your profession you're always Working to improve your effectiveness and your ability to positively influence, uh, change, right? So if you think of it that way, that it's a craft, the same as, let's call it a master, you know, musician or master, uh, dancer or any other professional vocation that would be considered a craft, um, You never really ultimately get there. What you're constantly doing is honing and climbing and improving. So those two things to me are critical and get to um, why this is not only compelling but so necessary. It's a paradigm, right? It's It's a proper paradigm for thinking about leadership and getting on that heroic path and staying on that path, but then trusting that the end state and the outcome is worthy of that journey.
0: Yeah, I mean, I love how you said it, that it's a craft. It's definitely a process. I think it's, it's you know, understanding that leadership is a learnable skill. Um, and it's a true development of any skill, like you said, really. I mean, you, you gave the examples of musicianship or even athleticism. I mean, it's all the same. It's easy for us to see when somebody has kind of reached the pinnacle and say, oh, well, look how talented they are or, or how lucky they are or they're naturally born. But really, when it comes down to it, it is a lifelong process that just evolves you never fully fully arrive it never ends just like much of a of a, of a concert pianist or olympic athlete they're constantly That's improving right. it no it never stops and it's it's easy to look at that concert pianist or even that olympic athlete in that moment of time and um, not give credit to the a lifelong dedication process that was involved behind it, and uh, I think the same is definitely true for leadership as well. And I don't think people intentionally look at that that way. They just kind of think you're either kind of naturally born as a leader, or, or you either have it or you don't. And um, I right. know you and I both strongly believe that it's a teachable skill that uh, that can be honed and, and needs to be crafted for a lifetime.
2: Absolutely, absolutely
0: correct. Well, gosh, Paul, these are always fun. It always uh, keeps me, um, I hope the, the listeners are getting as much out of it as I am. Um, l- again, let's give a quick plug to where people can find you and learn a little bit more about uh, the Callan Course in Heroic Leadership.
2: Sure. Uh, again, uh, Paul Callan is the name, and uh, our our course is called The Callan Course, spelled C-A-L-L-A-N, and our website, uh, which has all of our relevant information is www.calenlaw and that's all one word com.
0: All right I'll have some all this in the show notes and when I post this on my website again Paul thanks for coming back on the show this is so much fun I, I love doing these theme podcasts.
2: Rich, uh, again, thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for engaging not only myself, but all of your audience in, in these very vital topics. They're, uh, they're necessary, and uh, and they're fun, and uh, we, we appreciate what you do.
1: All right. Thanks, Paul. We'll talk to you soon.
2: Okay, Rich. Talk to you soon.
1: has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.